Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you're here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. Well, if you're like me, you like movies. If you're not like me, you may not like movies. But growing up as one of five, so there were seven in our household, my mom liked those chick flicks. You guys know what those are? And she liked the ones where it's somewhat predictable, almost like Hallmark, but not quite Hallmark. That was her vein. My dad, on the other hand, liked what we call the bang, bang, shoot 'em up movies. You know what those are, the action movies, the war movies, Oh, yeah, here we go. Get your blood going. And my mom's like, I hate these movies. But my dad, every now and then, would accommodate my mom's request to go for the chick flick. And other times, he's like, no, we got to go for the action. That's the one I want. And she would give in. And so her brother, my Uncle Trent, said, oh, there's this great movie you got to watch, April. I'm going to send it to you. She goes, that's great. So she gets the movie sent to her. And my dad gets it. And he looks at the title. And I'll tell you the title in a minute because it'll ruin it. And he's like, I really don't want this. And he's just delaying. So it's been a week, and then he delays another week. And finally, my mom gets him to sit down with some popcorn. We're in bed, and they get to watch this movie. And my mom's turning on, and she's like, oh, this is going to be so great. It's a date night. It's going to be a chick flick. And my dad's like, oh, no. Partway through it, she just goes, oh, no, I do not want to watch this movie. And he's just laughing hysterically because it's the Princess Bride movie. (laughs) And if you're a fan or don't know what that is, if you're, you can go Google it. And in it, he's just howling. And my mom's like, this is supposed to be a chick flick, Princess Bride. And it's anything but a chick flick if you've seen it. But there's a phrase in there that I've always wanted to use. It's marriage. Marriage is what brings us together. If you've seen that movie, it's that ornery part. And we're talking about relationships this month as we go through this series in February But it's relationships really in all stages of life. For some of us, we are single in this room. For some of us, we're divorced, remarried, widowed, walking through divorce. We have a variety of life stages represented here. And that's the world we also live in. And so though it's for better, for worse, kind of geared in marriage, it's really about relationships in general, you could look at this, because you're going to be able to take something away. And if you are married and you're sitting next to your spouse, don't be elbowing them through this series because you should really be elbowing yourself. If it's resonating with you, it's for you, not them. And so as we walk through this, we kind of have to look and engage at what does Scripture say about marriage? If you read Proverbs 18 and verse 22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And you could reverse that, ladies, to say, He who finds a husband also finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I would bet for most of us, when we were engaged or dating the puppy dog stage, we probably had that thought, like, I have found the one. He or she is so great. And sometimes we can find ourselves in the middle of the relationship thinking, I have not found favor. I have found hardship. Proverbs 21.9 says, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Ouch. You could reverse that, ladies, to the guys as well. And in fact, it's so important that it says the exact same wording in chapter 25, verse 24. He who finds he is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So it tells you something. 
in there. Proverbs is kind of the general idea of truth. It's not that if you do this exactly, it will happen. But generally speaking, this is pretty true. And so as we think through relationships, it's an interesting dynamic that God has done in ordained marriage, bringing two sinners, male and female, together to create a household full of sinners. You think about it. We all bring our own stuff to our relationships and to our marriage, how we were raised in our upbringing, how we relate to our parents, our siblings, friendships. All of those things come into play. And we have to remember, how do we then have a healthy relationship with our spouses, with friends, with people? We have to figure that part out before we can get to a healthy point, or we're doomed to duplicate everything that we have learned and continue to repeat and repeat, which is why the sermon is titled, God is Your One, because we have to keep them. It's, it's somewhat Christianese or Christian cliche, you could say, we've heard this, Nick, keep God as one and your spouse number two or, and that pecking order, and really it should be God one, and really at the very bottom is your family and everything else starts to pull in. God should be so far above But if God is your one, your spouse then is your two. And if you can keep that in perspective, we need to start with a big picture of marriage first and then dive into, well, how do you fight well? How do you have fun? How do you navigate the world that we live in? How do you navigate that together in a healthy manner? So we first have to start with God is your one, your spouse is your two. Francis Chan writes in his book, "Um, I have come to the conclusion that most marriage problems aren't really marriage problems. They are God problems which is very true, because if we were following Christ, if we're both, say, we're Christians in the marriage, and some of us have married spouses that aren't a believer or that we came to faith later, maybe they came to faith later, you have such a messy that we bring in all of our stuff. And it's really of how you view God and your relationship to him, because if you know him and you walk with him, the goal is this process of sanctification, this fancy word that means making you more like Christ. And you find that in the book of Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. After he has stated this big theological conclusion of chapters 1 through 11 of showing us how we are so far from God, yet God still loved us, died for us. He goes, I appeal to you, therefore, because of what was said the prior 11 chapters, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And it's this God problem that we find ourselves in marriages or in relationships in general, because when you first come to know Christ, we would say you're on fire sometimes, like you're just excited, you're ecstatic to share this good news. But then something happens, right? For those of us that have walked with Jesus for a very long time, How often is that fire quickened? How often have you shared your faith in the past month, in the past year, versus when you first came to know Christ? There's something that as you walk through life in the mundane monotony, day in, day out, that if you're not careful, you slowly drift in that relationship. And it's likewise in friendships and in marriages that if you're not intentional with things day in, day out, you start to drift. No, everything comes at a head. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. Everything that needs your attention right now is right in your face. Those things that are important are at a distance. And so they're not need to be dealt with today, right this moment. So we can sometimes put off the important things because the urgent's right in our face. And those of us in here who have kids, you know what that's like. I come home from work and I try to talk to my wife. My kids are right there. And it's like, okay, I'm just trying to talk. And, but they want my attention. And, and you can give them and you need to give them your attention. 
But the important thing is also to give my wife the attention too. And if I just get my kids' attention because they're urgent, they're right here, then I lose sight of my wife. And so there's this balancing act that things will trap us. And as we walk through life, it's that consistent day in, day out faithfulness piece that can get lost. And another way of reading Romans 12, 1 through 2 is this, this translation. It says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, meaning what God has done with those in mind, I beg you, brothers, as an act of intelligent worship to give him, Jesus, your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. In essence, total commitment to Christ. That's the whole point of Romans 12, 1 through 2. Because of what he has done, then let us live in a similar manner. And remember, we're only able to do that because of the mercies of God. It's the changing of our mind. It's the changing of what I look at and believe, it's letting God work in me only through the Holy Spirit. David Guzik writes this, resist conformity to the thoughts, the actions of this world. Don't be conformed, but focus on God's word and fellowship with him. Meaning you're renewing your mind, you're renewing because of your thought pattern. And it's a slow and steady process. As you walk with Jesus, sometimes it gets mundane. Sometimes the monotony of the day, like, is this even doing anything? Is going to church even helpful? Is being in a part of a group, is any of this worthwhile? The answer to that we know is yes, but we don't always see it day in, day out. It's the long haul. It's the 30 years from now. It's the 50 years. It's the 60 years Again, I had a professor in college who said, Nick, you can like us now as your professors, or you can like me 30 years from now because of what you learned. He goes, I'm going for the latter, which I loved his class. I hated the work because it was constant stream. He's like, Nick, in my class, a B is like an A in everybody else's. That's great, Dr. B, but I still have a B that's a 3.0, not an A that's a 4.0. So my grades are still lower, but I remember his class. And I remember his notes, and I remember all of what he taught me. The A's I got, the very easy sometimes, I don't remember a whole lot of them. It was that effort, that time to place in, that God is saying, look, by the mercies, you can do this. It's your spiritual worship, and be transformed by the way you think, by the way you act. And the truth of the matter is, you can't fix anybody else. You can't fix your spouse. You can't fix your kids. You can't fix your anybody. You only have control over you and all of this world, you have your responsibility to do. If you highlight, circle the word, the transformed in there in verse 2, it says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. If you highlight, circle that, the original Greek of this word was really metamorphosis, which is what we know as metamorphosis. So there's three occurrences that this word is actually used in Scripture. There's really four, but it's used here and three other occasions prior to this. And of those occasions in Matthew and Mark, it's very specific to a very, a very specific event. I keep using the word specific. But Matthew and Mark, they refer to this when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop. When you got to see his glory shown, this is the word that's used. He was transfigured before them when the Lord's glorious inner essence was allowed to show through his body so that his face radiated like the sun and his clothing was white. This is the same word that was used. 
And then in Corinthians, Paul writes this. If you want something, or excuse me, he writes it in Corinthians, the same word, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, the same word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In saying that as Jesus was transfigured before his disciples and they got to see all his glory, it's the same thing that's supposed to be happening to you and to me in our walk with him is that same honor and prestige that is shown before them is what you and I are growing into in our walk with Jesus. And the reality is we won't get there till we're dead, till we're in heaven. But it's this process that while we're here on earth, we walk slowly and surely with God, that we transform the way we look and live because of what Christ has done for us. So our attitudes, our words, the word Christian means little Christ, meaning everything I say, everything I do should be a reflection of who Jesus is. That's what I'm claiming by being a Christian. In fact, the disciples of old were known as the followers of the way because they so closely followed Jesus and the way he lived that you could tell no difference between the two of them except that one would mess up and one never did. They say, and that's what our responsibility as Christians and to walk in our faith looks like is we're to be transformed because of the way we think, because of what Christ has done by the mercies of what he has done we then keep him at the one. And the problem is life presses in and work gets hard and stress enters in and kids enter in and bills come in. And then you get the, I got fired, I got a medical diagnosis and all of these things vie for our time and our thought life. And then we have to compete with our own selfish nature because the reality is it's all about me. Psalm 51 says, from the moment you were conceived, you are a sinner, which means that from the moment you were born, you wanted nothing but what you wanted. If you don't believe this, you can talk to my two-year-old, and he'll tell you all about what he wants, and when he doesn't get it, he'll throw a little fit at times. That's our nature. And so by the mercies of God, we fight against that to not continue in that pattern, and we can only do that because of what Christ has done and through the Holy Spirit. Craig Rochelle writes, Pastor, if you want something different from what everybody else has, then you're going to have to do something different than what everybody else does. And when you read and you look at the world and the TV and the, the families on the shows and the families on the television and we look on social media and we see these stained glass masquerades of what the perfect couple looks like or what the perfect family looks like. And what they don't tell you on the social media side is how many pictures it takes to get that family picture, thousands, and they don't tell you the cost of where they're vacationing at. And then they don't tell you the cost of actually not just the financial, but the cost on the family to actually get to those perfect places that we look to emulate. Because it's all for show. I want you to see me as perfect. And what God says is I see the inner you, and I want the inner you to change, and I want to live, give you health, and I want you to thrive in the world. And we look at the world and we compete with that. And what he's saying here is, look, your, your act of worship is to go before God. And if you want to do something different, if you don't want to look like everybody else, you want to fail like everybody else, you're going to have to do something different. And that is contrary to culture and contrary to what the world says, which is putting God first and preeminent in your life and in your marriage and in your relationships. And it takes work. Any good thing will. It's a discipline to keep on. Any good friendship you have, you have to remember, it's not just you taking, it's both a give and a take in that relationship. Probably some of your best friends are the ones that you've had a knockout, drag out fight with more than likely. My friend Dan is one of those. We learned we can't room together. 
We tried it in college. It failed miserably. We had a knockout, but we're best friends. We're still good friends. And why? Because we've, we've worked through. It's a give and it's a take. There's ebb and there's flow. It's the same way with our relationship to Christ. It gets mundane at times. It gets monotonous at times. Like, is this even worth it? And the practice says, yes, because it's the end result we're shooting for. And some of us, as we're getting into relationships or marriages, it might feel a little bit just like this. Rochelle writes the marriage math. Why is it so important, this kind of making God your one, your two? Because our marriages will never be what God wants them to be unless we make him our one and we make our spouses our two. Unfortunately, a lot of us get those mixed up. Some people try to make their spouses one. I make you my everything. It's all on you now. Make me happy. And we probably have been there at times with our kids, maybe with our job as our one. It's supposed to satisfy me, fulfill me. And then he says, this is what happens. I know a few married people who are actually pretty good at making God their one, but then they put something besides their spouse into their number two. Some make their children their number two. Others make their careers their number two. But the only combination that works for marriage is making God one and your spouse two. When you try to make your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend the one, you're putting undue pressure on them. In fact, we have a word for when you raise another human being to that lofty position, idolatry. The truth is no person could ever be capable of meeting your needs. Our idols always fail us, and eventually we end up demonizing the people we idolize. When you put that out of whack, when you don't have God at first, he will never fail you or leave you. But when you put other things first, we will fail, we will mess up. So he continues with this thought, our idols always fail us. And when you idol, idolize someone and they let you down, which is inevitable, by the way, because every human makes mistakes and every human sins, then you're going to end up demonizing them. How could you do that to me? Why won't you just meet my needs the way I need you to? Why are you so mean and selfish? Sound familiar? We've all seen this before when they first get together. Your buddy tells you, this should bring up some memories for some of us. I love it that she's so organized. She's just so, so driven. And I love it that she's so passionate about everything. Then, after they've been married for a while, and time and experience gives him a slightly different perspective, she's a control freak. <laughs> she always has to have everything her way. Nothing I do is ever good enough for her. Her constant nagging drives me crazy. First we idolize, then we demonize. Women experience the same thing, of course. Men, we're not off the hook. She tells her friends, you know the greatest thing about him? He's just so laid back. You know how I'm usually wound up so tight? Hmm. Well, his chillness is just like the perfect complement to my personality. Being around him soothes me, you know? He comforts me. But then once she's had some time to settle in, those very things she used to find charming start eating away at her. He is such a bump on a log. I can never get him to go out. He never wants to do anything. He just refuses to lead our family. I'm pretty sure he'd be happiest if I let him sit in his recliner, play his games all day, every day. When we start to idolize another person, it's inevitable. We'll villainize them at some point. Which is why if we want something different, we have to do something a little bit different in our marriages, which is to keep God first and then our spouse second. So what do we need to do then? That's the kind of the question I wanted to ask today. If the big picture and the big focal point is that we have to keep God at the forefront and the first in our lives, what is then our role in the relationship piece, in the marriage piece, to make it all about me? Which is like, wait a minute, whoa, Nick, what? To make it all about you? Like me? Yes. To make it all about me. 
And if you read in here, and Francis Chaney writes this, we want our marriages to be filled with love, but maybe we've forgotten the best way to accomplish that, the gospel. To lay down your very life for your husband or wife, but ultimately for Christ, are you willing to die to yourself? When you make it about me, it's not that the selfish piece is coming out. I get what I want. I should have what I want. No, it's less about that, and it's more about you sacrificing, you laying down your life for the other. And if you have your Bibles in Philippians, which is a couple books over from Romans to the right, in Philippians 2, it says this in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, which is what we rail against and fight against, is what I want, but we put the needs towards others. We consider our spouse and say, what would actually they want? What would they have? What would they, and it's putting the onus on them and letting them. It continues to read in verse five, have this mind, you and I, among yourselves, which is, your, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he's saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Consider your spouse before you. Take the same mindset of Christ, who though he was right in all things and perfect in all things, he didn't lord it over us. You read John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that who should ever perish from everlasting life? But God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. So though Christ had all the right attitude to say, hey, you know what? I could lord this over you. I could punish you. He humbled himself. And likewise for you and us, I have to put their needs and interests. I change. It's all about me because I change. And I don't make my spouse change to what I expect them to change to. I change. And I start to consider their needs. I start to consider what would encourage them. I start to humble myself. Now, discernment, and let me just put a paraphrase here. There is evil in the world, and there are sometimes relationships we find ourselves in that are unhealthy, that are abuse-related. And that's not what I'm talking about here. Because in those situations, you call the police, you get those involved but in a normal marriage where sometimes things get a little hard, where you start to argue and fight, you start to consider, how do I change? I can't make my spouse change. I can't force them, but I can change. And I start to consider, how do I serve them? How do I help them? You acknowledge when you have caused pain, and, and you read in verses 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is saying, work out your own salvation Fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to do his will and his good pleasure. Sometimes you have to acknowledge, I did some things. I, I goofed. And sometimes when you see it on your spouse's face or you see it on your friend's face, you just say, I see that. I own my part in that. You don't wait for, okay, now own your part. Okay, now I've said my piece. Now you, no, no, no. You own your part. And you say, I see the hurt. I see the pain. I'm sorry. And if it's hard pain, if it's been a big argument, if it's been a big, maybe it's been cheating, maybe it's been something else, and you're still together, 
And when that pain flares up, because it will flare up from time to time, you won't necessarily have any reason. A song will come on or you'll be going. And when you see it on your spouse's face, your role is not to say, oh, how are you feeling? It's like, no, I see that. And I'm sorry. I know I probably caused some of that pain that you're experiencing. And it's putting their needs, I put their needs and interest first. The second part is I have to make it about the little things. It's all about me because I put the needs of them, their interests first, and I have to make it all about the little things. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, it reads this way, starting in verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So there's a, there's a going that Jesus says he's getting to Jerusalem and making his way there. The sons of Zebedee, the mother, says to Jesus, can my sons sit on your right hand and left? They kind of went to their mom and said, mom, could you kind of fix this for us? And he, she went to Jesus and says, can my sons, my beautiful, handsome, hardworking, intelligent sons sit at your right and left, places of honor? And Jesus says, you really don't, you don't have any idea what you're asking me. And he kind of declines that. But then the other ten, the others heard that these two brothers asked this, and they're kind of railing against, like, I can't believe that they were trying to scoot ahead of the line, to be in the seat of honor, to be in the position of power. And Jesus says this to them, he called them all, 12. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world around the Israel at this time, they lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I have to make it all about the little things. His disciples said, I want this honor, this prestige. And, oh, Jesus, can I be, can I have it? He says, no, no, you need to serve, which was the lowest class, the slave. And he says, no, no, that's your role. That's what we're called to do. I have to make it about the little things. The little things matter in marriage. It's those little foxes, Solomon says, that destroy the relationships, that destroy the marriage of Solomon. It's those little foxes, those little arguments those little things left unsaid, those little needle points that we do to our spouses. Because as we live with them, we know exactly what makes them tick. Your kids know exactly what makes you tick. They do it to you just to get a reaction. And the goal is not to react, but to be proactive and to someone has to be the adult. Same thing in marriages. Sometimes someone has to be the adult because we turn into little kids. It's those little things. Text when you're on your way home. Hey, I'm on my way home. And usually I text my wife that when I'm going to the car. Because she knows if I text her if I'm in the office, well, it's another 30 minutes. It's maybe more. So I've learned, okay, wait, when I'm going to the car, then she knows, okay, when to expect me home. 10 minutes from here. Versus I text her in the office, oh, I'll be, I'm on my way, and it's like an hour, hour and a half. Mm, you know, I'm getting it. You text. Man, put the toilet seat down. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it's, it's the little things that can make the big difference. You know what your spouse needs and you do these little things. You ask how her day is going or his day, even if it's the same monotonous thing every single day. Ask the question, how did your day go? How did the kids do? It might be the same response every day, but you've taken an interest. You're saying it's not about me, it's about you. Let me ask. You ask questions, you got kids? Well, play with them. Take them away from her, mom, because they will corral her and pounce on her. They've been doing that maybe if she's home all day long. So you take them. 
and you play with them, and you give mom a little bit of a break. You get a chance for her to have some alone time, to just have some time to herself to think and process. You get on the floor with them, and you play, and you show them their value, but you're always showing your wife at the same point, hey, it's washing the dishes, men. I get a lot of credit when I wash the dishes because my wife knows I hate dishes. And like, don't you do it more? I'm like, no, I do do it from time to time. It's, it's those little things that just stack up and make a big difference in your spouse's life. Women, same thing. You find what are those little things that just speak life, and you notice them. And if you're running at such a fast pace, you're going to miss those little things in life that God throws and provides opportunities for. I have to make it about these little things. Make the bed, run a load of laundry, cook the dinner. Women, you can take out the garbage, mow the grass. Some of you like that, and it's allowing them to say, oh, it's the man's job to grill or mow. It's like, no, if she likes, let her do it. Let her have fun. Enjoy the time. It's those little things that over a long period of time make a big difference in the relationship and marriage. And it's not holding back. Here's the other part of this. Sometimes when we're mad at our spouses or mad at our friend, we will hold back certain things because we know we're hurt and we're in pain or we're frustrated with them, so we will not do this. It's contrary to what we're called to do. But even if we don't receive what we're getting and needing, we serve. And we say, though I've been hurt, and you still have a right to bring that up, men and women, you still give the spouse what they need. And I have to make it all about serving, not being served. And that is found in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a great chapter on marriage. And he speaks this way. You have to read verse 21st of chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you read that first, then the next part makes a total sense. There is this mutual husband and wife submission. It's not wife, you're subservient to the male. Though sometimes we have preached that and said that in the churches and we've read that. That's not what he's saying here. There's a mutual submission, not just the wife submitting. It's mutual. In fact, in verse 22, the next one says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, why has he put that in there, Nick? Well, because there was the mutual submission above and he's saying, wives, not just your friends, you also have to do this to your husband. Because at this point in time, that may have not been the case. And so he's reinforcing there's mutual submission to one another. And wives, this also includes your husband. Not just a carte blanche statement, wives, you submit to them. It's like, no, no, no. You mutual submission, and this also includes your husband. And he defines for why that is. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And his body is himself in Christ. And as the church submits to Christ, as we follow his lead, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's not carte blanche of your needs are never met. No, I've, I've spoken before about my father who would look at my mom and say, when we make a decision as a family, she has input. And he considers her and says, if we make this decision, this move to a new house, relocation to a new church, will this empower her? Will this be beneficial? And if it's harmful or hurtful to her, then I don't want to do that. If it's going to be a growth point, we can do that. And so he turned down jobs along the way because it wasn't good for her and him. But she had input, and she always knew at the end of the day, she had that input, and that the decision he made would honor her and him. It wasn't just about him and the prestige of having a, a large church or a certain amount of money or income. It was for the mutual submission of one another. And Paul is saying the same way. Look, wives, this includes your husbands, just as in the household, you're made to complement one another. Where one is weak, the other is strong. Where one is strong, the other is weak. It's a compliment. 
We're made differently. We are, and that's okay. We have different strengths and abilities. And he likewise says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's a hard concept, gentlemen. What did Christ do for the church? He died. He agonized. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was bloody for the church. He self-sacrificed himself for her. That's your role, men, is to selflessly lead to the point of, I love her. How do I allow her to blossom into the woman who God has called her to be? How do I spur her onto him? How do I serve her better so that she can become all that God has called her to be? To love her the best that I can, just as Christ loved the church and served the church and served the people. You get the theme of this. It's all about you because this is the part you can do. You cannot change your spouse. You cannot change your friendships and relationships. You can't do that. I have to put their needs and interests above my own. I have to make it about the little things. I have to make it about serving them, not being served and not holding that against them. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great love chapter. It speaks all about love and what it is and what it isn't. And and he says, look, really, that's though we use it at weddings and ceremonies, he's like, really, that should be our attitude of the church is the gifts are great in the church. And some people are gifted in lots of ways, but without love, those gifts are meaningless and pointless. And he defines what love is. He goes, greater than all the gifts, greater than anything else is a love. And it holds no record. It keeps no record of wrongs that it forgives. That love at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, it's a choice. You choose to love someone or not. You don't fall out of love. You choose to love them or not. And sometimes you'll have the emotions and the feelings there. And other times you can't stand the other person. But you go back to, I have to put their needs of interest first. I have to make it about the little things. And I'm not saying we're perfect. We're far from perfect. It's getting back in the harmony of God needs to be our one. And as God is our one, then we start to know what to do in our relationships because we're putting him one and he's molding us and shaping us to consider how do I put their needs and interests first? How do I have to make it about, what little things can I just do and not look to be noticed? Because if you just start this today or tomorrow or this next week and you're looking for a pat on the back, you're not gonna find it. And for those of you that have been married for 20 years, 15 years, 20, all of those years, if you haven't put this into practice, you know it's gonna take some time, right? That if you've built some bad habits, if you've built some bad communication, it takes time. And we're in it for the long haul. It's faithfulness and glamour. It's consistently doing the right thing. And that's what we want in our marriages is God first and our spouse second. And we make it about us in the sense that we look to how do we put their interests first? How do I make it about the little things? I have to make it about serving them and not about me. That's why I said don't be elbowing them because it's going to resonate back with you. And so the next few weeks, we're going to look at that and kind of look at how do you have fun together in marriage? How do you fight? right? Because we, we don't ever fight marriages, right? Or any relationships. How do we, how do, we do that in a God-honoring, people-edifying, kingdom-advancing way? We're going to look at those these next few weeks. But in the meantime, be thinking, how do I keep God first? And how do I change myself? Not how do I change them or they should change. How do I change myself? So as we 